Some people like stories, others like numbers. In her book, Open Adoption and Diverse Families, Dr. Abby Goldberg has satisfied both camps, as well as those who equally love stories and data. Today's guest has brought me a huge gift in the form of her research. There are things that I know about effective parenting that I just know in my gut, and that would be this basic premise that truth and transparency and attunement are really solid guiding principles for raising emotionally healthy sons and daughters. So is that only anecdotally true, or can that be backed up by data? Dr. Abby Goldberg has spent the last 15 years gathering evidence that what I know to be true is, in fact, borne out by data. Adoption, The Long View is a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. Our focus is more on the marriage than the wedding. Once you fill the crib and are legally joined to your beloved child, your journey's not over. It's just beginning. We cover things you need to know now, perspectives you need to hear now. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption and longtime blogger at LavenderLose.com. I'm a mom through infant adoption to a daughter and a son, now in their late teens, and it's been a ride. Think of any road trip you've taken. There are ups and there are downs, and it's always an adventure. You're always glad for the trip, but afterward and during, you might end up thinking, if only I knew then what I know now. So here we go. Dr. Abby Goldberg is a professor of psychology and director of women's and gender studies at Clark University in Worcester, Mass. She received her BA in psychology from Wesleyan University, an MA in psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. For 15 years and counting, Dr. Goldberg has been conducting a longitudinal study of adoptive families headed by females, males, and heterosexual couples. Welcome, Dr. Goldberg. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's great to see you. And uh, your book was just so um, revelatory to me, and I'm excited to dig into that with you. Can you tell us briefly what led you to doing this vast amount of research on open adoption and diverse families? Yes. Um, so my research actually started in the late 90s and early 2000s, focusing on the transition of parenthood in heterosexual biological parent couples. And so through kind of doing that work, which was part of my graduate work, I became kind of really kind of enamored uh, and intrigued by the fact that there was so little research on other types of families and, and couples. So I did my dissertation on the transition to parenthood for lesbian couples who use donor insemination to become parents. So I was really interested in the idea of people becoming parents um, in collaboration with other people. So people who have to use or meet or um, come into contact with others in order to become a family or, or in order to become parents. Um, so that work kind of led me uh, to think about adoption. And so I sort of started digging into the literature and found out that there really was no research on the transition to parenthood for adoptive couples, which struck me as kind of shocking given that you know, the transition to parenthood is kind of a huge life transition and adoption, of course, is uniquely complicated and nuanced. Um, and there's sort of really unique things like what happens before people get to adoption that might have implications for their actual transition to parenthood. So how they approach it, 
um, what are their concerns, what are their fears, what are the unknowns, and then all of kind of, you know, how things unfold. So I, that would just shock me. You know, there was one study out of Israel from the early 90s, and it was quantitative and really didn't go into any exploration. So I, in 2005, I launched this study. Um, this was back in the days before, um, you know, a lot of social media or technology. So I literally called adoption agencies on the telephone, you know, and sent them emails and asked them to give brochures about the study to their clients who had not yet adopted. And so I had wonderful adoption agencies all over the country who helped me do this work and, you know, gave my brochure to folks. Um, and it was very important to me that I get couples before they actually adopted because I wanted to look at that transition. It would have been much easier if I had found people who had already adopted, but then, you know, I wouldn't get any of the kind of uh, the juicy data on what happens in terms of, you know, how, what people think is going to happen versus what actually happens. Um, and it felt so important to me to understand what was going on for families and couples beforehand understand more about what that transition looked like for different folks. So, so, um, so you can kind of yeah. track their beliefs and what exactly. happens along the way. Exactly. And, and in some ways, you know, very unexpected things happen. And one very concrete example is, you know, sometimes people say in the you know, pre-adoptive period, you know, I'm only, you know, I really want a girl or I'm only open to this race or I really, you know, I'm not open to open adoption, right? And, you know, often people don't get exactly what they think they're going to get, um, or the longer that they wait, as some people might know, you know, sometimes your um, attitudes can change or your openness to various things can change sometimes just by necessity, right? So somebody might gently say to you, you know, it's probably going to hurt your chances of adopting in the next couple of years if you are not open to at least some level of, say, drug or alcohol exposure, or, you know, if you really are so restrictive about the gender of your, or the sex, rather, of your child, um, you know, that's, that's potentially going to hurt you in terms of being placed with a, a child quickly, um, or somewhat, somewhat expediently. So, yeah, so that was important to me. So I started that work, um, and it just happened to be, and this was again, mid 2000s, that a lot of these agencies were predominantly doing open adoptions. And I became very interested in open adoption. I had read um, some books at that point um, by the great kind of pioneers of open adoption, and I was really intrigued. And so a lot of the agencies that were interested in working with me um, and distributing this information happened to be adoptions, predominantly doing open adoptions. And I also had worked with um, child welfare agencies and agencies that facilitated international adoption. So the, the sample that I have is a mixture, the overall sample is a mixture of domestic, private, and domestic, public, and international um, adoptive families. And you talked with various um, combinations of adoptive parents, as well as a few young adoptees, is that correct? Yes. So my um, study is uh, consists of uh, lesbian couples, gay male couples, and heterosexual couples. So um, I did not include single parents for this predominantly because uh, the primary grant that funded this work um, really emphasized that it was important to kind of not have every source of variability in there um, and it kind of cut, cut it at some point. Uh, and a lot of the questions I was asking about were things like division of housework, relationship quality, they, they wouldn't have been as relevant to single parents, but that 
of course, that is a very important topic, and a doctoral student of mine did her dissertation on the transition to adoptive parenthood for single parents. Um, so, so yeah, lots of variability. And then in the most recent follow-up, um, when kids were about eight to nine years old, we did interview some of the kids of these families, which I think is what you're talking to. So, yeah, I, I was um, surprised and pleased to find that the voice, the voice of the children, were in there too. And yes, are you they, planning they to are. talk to them more? I think so eventually. Uh, to be honest, it was uh, this is kind of interesting. So, um, you know, I to give some background, I've been interviewing these families since 2005, and I've conducted eight different assessment points, some of which have just been questionnaires, but many of which have also been interviews. Um, and uh, the kids in the follow up when kids were about eight to nine years old, on average, we had money to, to ask, you know, the kids some questions. Um, some parents didn't really want their kids to be interviewed, and that's really interesting in and of itself. So, um, you know, re related to open adoption, you know, some of these families said things like, uh, I'm worried that, you know, asking them questions about adoption will highlight an aspect of their er of their family that is different when I really would rather not draw attention to it. Um, or they don't think they're different, so I'm, I'm concerned that talking about it will make them think they're different. Um, and then in other cases, it was really things around like, the, you know, my child's really shy or my child hates talking on the phone or, you know, a lot of very kind of age kind of developmental um, related reasons. But I did find that really fascinating. I think about two thirds of parents agreed to have their kids be interviewed. Um, and then of the one third that didn't, you know, some again, some were kids just were like not interested. And then some were parents kind of being concerned about what that might bring up for their kid. Hmm. Okay. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah. I want to get something really basic down. Yeah. How do you define open adoption? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, a good question. Um, so I'm a really big fan of um, David Brodzinski's uh, distinction between structural openness and communicative openness. So when I think of open adoption, you know, depending on the context, I could be talking about one versus the other. I think most people think of it in terms of the structural component, right? Like, sort of, do you have contact with the birth family? You know, does the adoptive family have contact with or information about, is there some kind of exchange of information between the adoptive family and the birth family before or after the adoption? That's typically what people think of in terms of structural openness. Um, but communicative openness is a very important element of open adoption, right? You can have structural communication without communicative openness, and you can have communicative openness without structural openness. So communicative openness is really like, how do you talk about adoption? And what is what is the kind of overall um, attitude about um, talking about adoption and birth family? What, you know, I think you call about, you know, call it the spirit of openness. So, um, you know, is adoption discussed openly within the adoptive family? Um, does the adoptive family approach the topic of birth family and, and adoption with a sense of um, openness, curiosity, engagement, um, warmth? Is there a sense of transparency and dialogue around it versus kind of it, it's, it's kind of an off, off topic, uh, sort of off, um, off limits topic um, or kind of something that's not discussed? Um, and that's a fascinating distinction, and it kind of fits in with this um, construct I came up with called the open adoption grid, where you yeah. can have both types of openness, you can have neither, and then you can have one without the other. And um, it, it's interesting with families living in 
what we call open adoption, not knowing which of the four quadrants that may be. Um, because when you, when you invite in the structural openness, when you invite in contact, because you're inviting in people and relationships with people and emotions of people, you're inviting in a lot of complexity. And if you don't also have a tool to deal with that complexity, like the communicative openness, um, it's going to be really hard. And so I see stories um, a lot online and in blogs and um, people talking on social media about a, a visit gone wrong, a visit mm -hmm. with birth family gone wrong because of that complexity. Or the child is sad after the, after the meeting or mad or having whatever big emotion. So um, what are parents to do with this? I mean, the temptation might be to just close off contact to avoid those big feelings. But what does, what does your research show about throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you think of that, again, that spirit of openness and approaching both, again, communication and visits and things don't go right or things go in a different way than expected, um, I mean, it's, it's really about communication, right? So communicating with the child, what happened? How are you feeling? Communicating with the birth family. Gosh, that was, that was a tough visit. Like, let's, let's talk about that if we can. Um, you know, and then there can be some communication and some transparency around, you know, let's, let's hold off maybe on the next visit. Um, but always being in communication about, you know, what is happening? You know, this is how we're feeling. We are committed to our relationship with you on an ongoing basis. Or if you're talking to your child, we are committed to, you know, being the best parents we can and listening to you and being here and talking about whatever you want to talk about. Um, so it's really a sustained attention and commitment, even when crap hits the van, right? So it's like not just saying, I give up, this is, this is too hard. Um, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I mean, the name of the game in openness is change. It's change. It's change. And that's just life. But it's really amplified in the context of open adoption where, you know, you, you, you meet this great birth family and they're perfect and you're, everything's so wonderful. And then you guys have visits and then maybe they fall out of contact. And you're, you know, as the adoptive family or parent, you're so confused and you're hurt and you're wondering what happened and, you know, how, how are you supposed to move through with that and move on with that? I think some awareness of, of just that, that, that there's that change happens and that that can very well change again is really helpful to keep in mind. And I think right now we're all so um, we're getting so skilled at um being prepared for the unexpected right now and kind of being ready to roll with whatever, not because we are so great at it, but because we have no choice. And so I think we're kind of like developing that muscle of just kind of falling in with uncertainty. And I think that's a lot of what parenting is in general and especially parenting in an open adoption is sort of like, oh, okay, you know, so this is happening. And you know, not making any hard and fast rules or decisions about, okay, that's it. You know, we're done. We're done with them. You know, or we're, we're not going to see, we're not going to do this anymore. Um, but just sort of maybe staying open um, and sort of thinking about what needs to happen for everyone to be okay. Um, so that's really also where boundaries come in and, you know, wh wh what, what needs to happen to make sure everyone here is okay. I find in my own experience that um, anything that I'm avoiding or resisting is probably something that needs attention. 
And um, not just with adoption stuff, but definitely with with adoption stuff. If I'm um, trying to avoid a visit because the last one was hard, um, then like you say, there's something I need to dig into, maybe in myself, maybe um, with the people involved. And that willingness to go there can actually increase intimacy and um, closeness and make things better for the next time that rather than if I just um, avoided it. Absolutely. And then I think also just a go, what goes along with that is really looking at your expectations and your wishes and, you know, taking a look at them and, and acknowledging where like sometimes you, you know, you've been hurt, your expectations have not been borne out and you feel disappointed or you feel um, frustrated or, you know, there are things you want to say that you don't feel like you can say. And I think, you know, a lot of that's just normative. And I, I think it requires everybody to do some of their own work, you know, separate from, you know, other people to understand, you know, why, why, why do I find myself so reactive, you know, when, um, you know, when the birth family asks for an extra visit, or, you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be, really, um, or doesn't seem appreciative of something that I did, or, um, you know, doesn't return phone calls, but then, you know, calls and wants to see the child you know, this weekend or something like that. Exactly. And parent parenting is filled with tough things to talk about. Adoption isn't the only one. So I was really fascinated to find in your research, there's a, you've made a connection between being able to talk about adoption issues and being able to talk about other tough issues. So I'm going to read a passage out of your book. If anybody's got your book, Open Adoption and Diverse Families, um, I'm reading off of page 218. So when parents are open, flexible, and responsive in their general and adoption-related communication, this promotes positive adoptee identity development. It encourages more open and honest family communication about other important family topics. Somebody was in your survey was quoted as saying, the openness makes it easier for us to talk about other situations like drugs, alcohol, boys. It's made our relationship more open. And then you go on to say the um, opposite as well, that the lack of flexible adoption-related communication within the family can undermine adoptee development because you're not able to talk about those hard topics. Can you talk a little bit about that that connection between all of those issues? Yeah. Um, so I think I think I go into some detail about it that, um, you know, to kind of elaborate on that idea, parents who kind of decide to be or who kind of practice being open and flexible and responsive and kind of adaptive in their treatment of adoption related stuff can really often expand that attitude or that practice to other domains, right? They, again, they've built that kind of openness muscle or that flexibility muscle and they've become practiced at listening and hopefully maybe not immediately responding to topics and issues that might be really kind of fraught with potential conflict or that are tough to heart about that are talked about that are very scary you know like talking to kids about um you know drug use or sexuality or um you know concerning behaviors or, or really anything um, and I think adopting a child often means that parents are challenged to kind of throw out their assumptions about what parenthood is going to be like and kind of have to um, see, see the child in front of you in a way and the situations that are in front of you. And bio parents experience that too. Um, but maybe in some ways they are even less prepared for that. You know, they kind of have even more expectations. This child's going to be kind of my mini me. Um, but 
you know, you after you kind of accept your child isn't you or that parenthood may not be exactly what you expected it to be or hoped it to be, honestly, in some cases, in some situations, when you kind of accept that, you do become more attuned to um, and open to what your kid is bringing to the table and kind of what you need to do to be present at that moment. And some of that does mean, um, you know, pr again, practicing that flexibility muscle and kind of that, that responsiveness. So it, it seems super important to get, um, facile. I don't know how to yeah. say that word facile <laughs> with, um, turning a reaction into a response yeah. on some of these heated things. So, um, a question that um, comes up with adoptees sometimes talk, talk to us about what did you discover around the idea that if the child isn't asking about their adoption, it means they aren't thinking about their adoption. Right. So, I mean, kids don't necessarily talk about a lot of things that may be on their minds. And I think that's something that we as parents know intuitively, right? Sometimes we can see that our kids have something on their minds. They come home from school or they come home from homeschool now and they, you know, seem very uh, distraught. And, you know, you say, what's wrong? And they say, all right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not inevitable. It's not sort of like, you know, uh, a, a truth that children always say exactly what is on their mind. Um, so kids might, who are, aren't asking might not be asking for a variety of reasons. So they might not be asking or talking because they really don't fully engage or understand with what adoption is. So that's certainly true of kids who are younger, right? Many, many parents talk about how there is like a transition from like adoption, adoption, I'm adopted to I'm adopted. Adoption. Oh, I get it now. Right. And so that transition can sometimes, you know, before, before that transition happens, you know, maybe kids don't really get it or maybe they get it. And then it's really a profound um, reckoning that they're really not really ready to talk about. Um, as kids get older, though, they usually do have more curiosity about their identity um, and about family origins and differences, especially, you know, again, as they're sort of exploring their racial identity, their sexual identity, their gender identity. Um, and they kind of come to some understanding as they get older of like how they're different and similar to, um, different from and similar to their parents um, and their other family members and their birth family. And so, you know, kids often have questions about that or they have thoughts about it. And so kids not talking about that as they get older, that, that may have something to do with messages, implicit or explicit, that these are not okay things to talk about. Um, that this is an upsetting topic that people in their family don't want to talk about it, that they would rather focus on all the ways that we are, for example, the same, or we are all the ways we are a family and how great our family is versus, um, you know, tough questions or, or, or things that, you know, they, maybe they notice that their, their, one of their parents gets really kind of quiet when the topic comes up or leaves the room or seems to get short with them. Well, you know, kids get that on some level, you know, they internalize that and that may make them less likely to ask or, or inquire. Um, so we do, I do talk to parents who say, my child never, never asks about it and doesn't talk about it. And so, you know, then it's sort of like, okay, well, do you ever bring it up? Well, no, because they're not bringing it up. Well, <laughs> no, the conversation has to start from somewhere and just, you know, parents, even, you know, even if they feel like they're talking about it, um, I would say there is definitely an upper limit. Parents can talk about it too much, right? Like, I think we would all say, like, there is something a little 
disturbing if we think about like somebody who's constantly bringing it up, right? Um, that goes back to kind of Kirk, 1964, his, his uh, adoption, uh, writer, a scholar who talked about kind of acknowledgement of difference and emphasis on difference and minimization of difference, right? There is some kind of balance in there. You don't want to be constantly talking about it, but you also don't want to totally minimize it. Um, so, but I think parents need to look at what they might be doing implicitly um, to kind of maybe discourage those conversations or um, are there ways in which you can talk about it that feel very kind of um, normative? So I'm thinking like, you know, choosing a certain movie to watch, right? Like a movie that deals with adoption related subjects and that might kind of prompt some discussion or um, a book recommendation, you know, even just saying, oh, you might thought you might like this book. You know, you don't have to read it together necessarily. Um, or, you know, pulling out certain photographs or materials and, um, you know, having a conversation. So some looking for ways to do it in a way that it feels natural. Um, and again, practicing that muscle of openness. And I think finding, uh, being willing to look inwards about your implicit or explicit um, ex expressions about things, that, that, that takes a lot to be able to find that fine line between denying mm -hmm. um, the effects of adoption and the things that come up because you're, you know, you're, a, you're a blended family and right. um, dwelling on it. Right. You want to, those are the two extremes. You want to be somewhere in the middle and right. not miss what's going on. Yeah. I think it's helpful if parents just remember, like, I, I find it helpful for myself just to sort of say, oh, that's me stuff, right? Like that stuff, that's my stuff, right? Like I need to deal with that separately, but um, being aware of those things, it, I think makes me hopefully a better parent and just to say like, if I'm not, if I'm not watching that, this could, I could bring this into my parenting in a way that wouldn't be productive um, because I am, for example, you know, so concerned or worried about X, Y, or Z, or this is a really tough topic for me personally. Mm, mm, that's so, that's so good. I was so pleased in your book that you would devote a whole chapter to kind of an understudied and under talked about population and that's birth fathers. Mm -hmm. I know. Mentioned... Well, it was a shorter chapter, but I had to put it in. <laughs> Yeah, it might have been important. harder to find data on, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Mm -hmm. But one of, the, um, one of the pieces of information you said is that um, boys reportedly ask more about their birth fathers than the girls do, and that parents are more likely to think of birth fathers in this way. You already have a father. Why would you wonder about him? And I see that as kind of the either or, you know, you have one father, you don't need the other. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about why birth fathers are seen in those ways. Yeah, I mean, I think this has so much to do with how we view mothers and fathers in our culture. Um, and some of it, of course, is, is obvious, right? Mothers carry children and birth them. And there's a lot of assumptions about a, a birth mother's connection to a child is more long lasting and more connected maybe than a birth father's who is just providing, I'm using that in quotes, um, material. Um, but that is how some people think of it as birth mothers are connected to this child. And the birth father is often positioned as really kind of outside of that um, scenario. And I think um, a lot of times, you know, agencies, birth mothers themselves, um, can, can kind of minimize the birth fathers and sort of their level of importance in this 
whole openness uh, framework. So I've been, I didn't know him. Um, he's not important. And in some cases, it's more concerning stuff, like he was abusive or um, I was raped. Um, so there are kind of more objective reasons for why birth mothers, adoption agencies, and then by default, adoptive families sort of say the birth father is not somebody that we're giving a lot of attention to or particularly want to engage with, um, you know, as an idea or as a relationship, right? So there's both the kind of broad ideas about mothers are so important, every child needs their mother, fathers, eh, you know, it's great if you have one, but, you know, you certainly don't need more than one. Um, and we actually see that in my research with um, two dad families, too, where they're sort of much more interested in getting to know the birth mom, right, than the birth dad, because they're like, well, the kid has two dads. I mean, like, come on. And what they need, maybe, um, is a contact with a birth mom. But why would we engage with a birth father. I mean, I'm breaking that down more simplistically, but the idea is that like, I mean, that would be nice maybe, but it's not essential, right? So there's a displacement um, kind of at a theoretical level and then at a kind of more relational level of the birth father um, where they are positioned outside and they actually do really need to fight to be part of this um, in many cases. So they need to say, no, I want to be um, I want to be part of this adoption plan, if they even know about the, the, the birth, um, or I, I want to have contact with, with this family or with this child. Um, and there are cases where birth fathers are involved in these families' lives, um, but it is usually when they are in a relationship with the birth mom, which is consistent with other research. Yeah, it's interesting because um, through modern technology, we can break out the bio biological connection and the genetic connection. Yes. And the in a typical adoption, the, the birth mom has both the biology of carrying the child and the genetic connection. Um, and, the, and the father has only the genetic connection. So, um, but as the child grows, that genetic connection does become really essential and a really essential piece in um, identity development. Yes. And I always do want to um, kind of prep people who are going into conversations about birth father with the child that you should be ready to have more. They, it tends to morph into the birds and bees discussion because explaining who the birth, birth father is requires a different kind of a different level of detail yes. and explaining who the birth mother is. So anybody listening, I want to make sure that you can that you know that it could go there and be ready. Uh, but if you're open, yeah, yep, yep. you've got. This is your opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about agencies because you mentioned them earlier, mm -hmm. and the the role that they play in how prepared all 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 parties are in dealing with these complexities that come up, whether there's contact or not. You mentioned a case in your book where um, the adoptive parents were going through an agency that had really updated and modern practices practices based on openness and truth. But the expectant mom who was in another state was going through an agency that was more old school, kind of secretive. And they were hinting to her that maybe she shouldn't be so forthcoming with the birth father's identity and you know, maybe hide this. Don't worry about that. Let's just keep this tidy and closed and move on. Mm -hmm. what, what happens with, with such a class of, clash of expectations and preparation for this openness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when adoptive parents and birth parents are working with, for example, agencies that do have these very different like practices and 
um, kind of philosophies, that that can lead to a real unproductive mismatch in expectations. And it can be a really terrible setup for disappointment on someone's end. So, you know, it, it can lead to a lot of miscommunication, right? Because if the adoptive family is, is approaching this with, we are 100% committed, we, you know, really want to have an open adoption, you know, we believe that this is the best thing, we've read all the research, we, we completely have drunk the Kool-Aid, it's best for everyone involved. Um, and the, the birth, expectant mother um, or parents are sort of hearing messages of, you know, clean break is best. Um, you know, they may say this, but they're probably not going to follow through, or it's really best for the child if you just, you know, you know, write a letter every year and that's it. Then, you know, there, there's a potential for, uh, you know, a match to happen and for communication to be kind of um, stilted or kind of unproductive. Uh, but there's also the possibility that that will disrupt and that that match will not happen. And that the adoptive parents, for example, in that situation might conclude that that is an actually not a great match. Um, or the expectant parents might become very suspicious of the adoptive parents and quote unquote all of their promises. So I think in an ideal situation, you know, both parties are working with people who are, you know, uniformly um, engaged with a kind of a similar philosophy around openness, because that will promote more trust. Um, and that will lead to um, some shared understanding of what all of these terms even mean. Um, so, you know, what does it mean to have contact? And what does it mean to be open versus kind of, you know, kind of, I just picture two cars kind of missing each other, you know, they're just kind of not connect, you know, they're just not connecting, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think I think there are fewer and fewer of those particular types of agencies that you know are still promoting the benefits of a clean break, you know, and the child really needs to move on, and you know you need to move on, and you know everyone should go their separate ways, and um, you know it's not it's not good for every anyone to kind of have that kind of contact, um, but they are still out there, and I know that because I continually hear. Um, from folks that say, well, my agency says, you know, we have to have op an open adoption. But what that really just means is that we have to kind of exchange this basic um, information. And then after the baby is born, like, then we don't really have to do that anymore. So even the agency is kind of on board with the idea that like, this is pro forma. Um, and it's we're calling it open, but it's not really open. And I think you've mentioned before that, um, the level of structural openness by default ends up being whatever the least willing person in it is. Is yes. that correct? Yes. Yeah. I think of it as sort of the, like the kind of lowest level of comfort, you know, the lowest level of comfort with contact. That is really usually what it ends up being, right? Kind of, you go to the lowest common denominator um, and that may change, right? That person with less comfort initially may shift their orientation, um, but usually that's the party that determines what contact will actually look like. In your research, did you find anything counterintuitive, something you didn't expect to find? 
Yeah, I mean, I really was surprised at how much positive shift there was in some families kind of approach and beliefs about open, open adoption. And that gave me a lot of hope that adoptive parents, people in general can change. They can adapt to the reality of the situation that they're in. Um, they can come to see the birth family as human beings and they really developed empathy for people who they may have been fearful of or been kind of cautious around. Um, you know, they might have initially kind of approached theoretical birth parents with kind of suspicion or fear, but in their particular situation, they came to be very, um, honestly, very empathic, I would say, and very kind of human and could see all of the challenges, for example, that this birth family um, or birth set of birth parents experienced that led them to maybe place a child and that were also interfering with them being maybe, you know, um, always available for the family for visits and so on. So they made a connection between, oh, you know, the challenges that this family is facing or that this birth mother is facing in her life. Um, they're the same challenges that make it really hard for her to show up um, for a promised visit. And I get that and I have empathy for that and I don't blame her for that. I can see it and I can feel real deep compassion. Mm-hmm. I'm soaking that in that there's <laughs> kind of this evolution towards openness Yes, um, that, that people tend to go through in yeah. your, in that, and that's borne out by data in your study. Uh, we're, as we're um, interviewing today, we're about we're in the eighth month of the eighth month of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Have you kept up with your families and how are they faring with openness and contact during these quarantine times? Yeah, I have. I actually uh, did a quick survey of them when um, early in the pandemic, um, like May, uh, and just sort of to see how they were doing and coping. And most of them were, you know, in full on quarantine at that point. Um, and I did ask specifically about birth family and contact, and it was very consistent that any planned visits um, were canceled. You know, a lot of them talked about visits that had been planned that they were um, now canceled. They were they were leaning on uh, technology more to kind of maintain those relationships. So many of them said, you know, instead of that, we've moved to having semi-regular FaceTimes, which I thought was really promising. So there was like kind of an an adjustment the way many of us kind of made an adjustment to kind of keep up with family. Um, And I thought that was really uh, positive. I did see that some families were very concerned about the birth families, that they were worried about them um, economically. Um, they were worried about their housing situation in some cases because they were concerned about the effects of the pandemic on more vulnerable folks, um, which included the birth families. Mm-hmm. So based on all this research, truly a long view, 15 years and counting, and especially considering what the children in the study have told you, can you boil things down to your best piece of advice for adoptive parents about the long view? And this is a question I ask of all of our guests. Yeah, I mean, I think I referred earlier to that, you know, the idea that change is the norm, right? Change is the name of the game. It's um, part of any relationship, but it's especially relevant to openness. So being open to change and kind of almost expecting that it's inevitable, I think is actually, there is something comforting about that, Um, that if we can just stay open to the possibility of change, um, that we are, then we are less um, 
shocked when it happens. And I think sort of related to that is really understanding that different stages in the life cycle um, or developmental period of the kid uh, or kids, you know, it's important to realize that there are adoption competent, you know, people out there to draw on for support. You know, there may not be an adoption competent therapist in your geographical area, but there, you know, we're so lucky now to have so many resources online. And now in the world of telehealth, you know, people can see people in other states and can be, you know, can find an adoption competent therapist or consultant somewhere else um, and get some input. So I think realizing that this is a journey, right? This is a marathon, not a sprint. And so it's sort of like picking up your sustenance when you need it along the way as a, as a lifelong long distance runner. <laughs> this is how I like my analogies. So it's like when you find that you need something, like looking around and maybe you're like, you know, oh yeah, I, I can see something, right? I needed that. Um, you know, it's just more staying open to the possibility that at some point you might you might need some support, you might need some help, and then there might be years that go by that you're doing fine, you're chugging along, and you really are not. You don't need anything, right? Um, so I think just that openness and staying open and realizing the resources that we do have available to us um, that that they can be very powerful when we do find ourselves stuck. So I hear you saying that openness means flexibility and an, an ability to weather change, which is inevitable. And right. if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that um, change happens all the time and mm -hmm. we adapt. We do. We find ways. I mean, it is really shocking if you look around and you see what people are doing to adapt and what we have adapted to. And not to say that that's, that's great, but we should pat ourselves on the back for just adapting. Um, and we, we, we all are learning a little bit about our own resiliency and that when faced with a very challenging situation, we do find ways to adapt. We are more creative and more resilient than we might believe. Mm. That might be the capstone of, of this interview. That's a beautiful note to end on. So thank you, um, Abby, so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. With each episode of Adoption the Long View, we bring you guests that expand your knowledge of adoptive parenting. Please subscribe, give this episode a rating, and share with others who are on the journey of adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of you listeners for tuning in and investing in your adoption's long view. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, capability, and compassion.